You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today on the podcast, Hannah interviews James Matthews, the Managing Director of Blueprint, a next generation financial planning firm in Charlotte, North Carolina. James shares his unique background from working at a bank and then a call center and how each step taught him skills that he's now using to create a new model of financial planning. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Before we start this episode, I want to share with you one of my favorite conferences, the FPA Retreat, which will be in Atlanta this April. The FPA Retreat has become my must-go-to conference every year. It is viewed as the Advanced Financial Planning Conference, and I found that these are the advisors like James and others who are really pushing the profession forward. This year especially, they are wanting young advisors to come and participate and help shape these big discussions on what financial planning should be. They're offering $300 off the tickets for anyone under the age of 36, so if you're interested, be sure to register by March 17th. The FPA retreat is packed with excellent CE and networking that in my experience is unmatched. If you're on the fence, send me an email and I'm happy to talk more about it with you. Let's jump into this interview with James. It's a good one. Well, thanks for joining us today, James. Oh, you're welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. Yeah, well, I'm so excited for listeners to just hear more about your career path. So can you give us, there's so much interesting there's so many interesting parts to your story. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you get started into the financial services profession? Sure. Well, that's a great question. It, I wish I had a, a fun and exciting story about that. I really don't. Um, I was in college. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, originally in that area and was in school and was getting ready to graduate and was looking for just jobs. And I was working in, in restaurants and things like that and, and was really just looking for sort of a grown up job. And all of my family either were our teachers or they were involved in financial services in some capacity. I had an aunt that was a branch manager at a bank and cousins and things that were in the financial services industry. And I knew that one paid a lot more than the other. So, so I was coming out of school, was looking for work and figured that I would just go get a job at a bank because that's what people did who made money, I thought, you know, and I got to wear a suit every day and thought it would be exciting. So I was recruited in early 2005 uh, into a customer service role with a large regional bank who placed me in a branch right in downtown Baltimore City. So sort of in the right in the middle of, of everything in downtown Baltimore. And uh, it, was, it was a really good learning experience for a couple of reasons, because for one thing, I didn't know anything about money at that point at all. I was you know a 22 year old kid, really. And just the dynamics of being in that setting to work, you know, and on one hand, it was downtown, it was in a city, it was, you know, neat with everybody, you know, up and down the streets during the day in suits and, you know, a lot of money down there. But there was also this weird contrast of that with like poor and homeless people. So there was a lot of that around, too. So, you know, we could have in the bank lobby on any given day folks coming in that literally had nothing. And then you'd have professional athletes coming through to go up to our private advisory group that was up on the second floor, kind of above the bank branch. Um, so I got aware of that real early. It's sort of the differences in people's wealth levels and things like that. And it kind of gave me a different view of people who are at the bottom end of the spectrum in terms of incomes and assets. And I actually spent a lot of time with them as I got to learn how the bank worked and was opening accounts and doing customer service and things like that. 
getting to kind of hear what their stories were and, and got to know them and, and really wanted to focus on treating them well and trying to learn as much as I could from that experience. So I did that for about a year or so, and then was starting to look at, as I got more experience, look at other more sales-oriented opportunities within the bank. And one day, one of the financial advisors that worked upstairs came down and took me up to her office. And I, I think I was about 23 or so, and actually did a financial plan for me, um, which I thought was interesting at the time because I really didn't have much to put in it. Um, but she helped me like enroll in my 401k plan and choose the right investments for that. I hadn't done that at that point. And you know, she really didn't have to do that. And that triggered something in me that made me think of you know, others in, that are in that situation with no access to help. Um, really, from a really young age, it, it kind of started me thinking down that path of, you know, how do we somehow make this kind of help available to people that are like me, you know, that don't know anything. So I continued in that role. And with the regional leadership for the bank being in the building where I was, because it was sort of a headquarters building downtown, they started sort of noticing what I was doing. And eventually a sales type position opened up in another branch kind of out in the county. And they moved me into that role. So I'd been there, I guess, about two years or so at that point. And that role was more of like a consumer lending kind of role. So this was like 2006 or so. And we all know, you know what was kind of going on with real estate, especially in that Baltimore, D.C. area. At that point, values were kind of at their peak. And so I was doing a lot of consumer lending. I was doing you know, car loans and things like that. But I was also doing a lot of refinancing of mortgages and such and helping people pay off debt and lower their interest rates and consolidating debts and things like that. So... During that time, I had gotten married uh, while that was going on and um, had gotten my, my securities licenses. I think I had gotten my Series 6 and 63 by then and found myself as I was doing all this debt restructuring for people uh, that I was practicing financial planning really before I even knew there was such a thing, that I was taking the money that we were saving people on one hand from restructuring their loans and helping them put it into IRAs and helping them invest the proceeds. And I was able to help put money in mutual funds in those days and things like that, helping them create emergency funds if they didn't have one. So it was kind of helping them put the right building blocks together um, by, I guess, what we call cash flow optimization, right? It, trying to streamline their cash flow to help find better uses for it. And really started to fall in love with that whole problem solving aspect of planning. Uh, and, started reading a lot of books at that point on personal finance and things just to kind of figure out what I needed to be doing personally at that point. I was 25. I was a newlywed um, and had bigger aspirations you know, in terms of wanting to do more with my career than just, just that in a bank branch. So in 2008, we decided to move to Charlotte, which is where we've been since. And I stayed with the same, same bank and it came down here. And of course, then we know what happened next, right? So it was a pretty major life transition for us that my wife was pregnant at the time. And then we got here and she didn't go back to work. And then we had the big economic downturn and suffered a pretty big reduction in income, both from you know, my work drying up basically and her not working when we got here. And so I really focused on applying all the things I had been learning in all the books I had been reading to our situation now that we were going to have a baby and, and all these things, trying to make the right choices. And trying to make you know the right priorities and make sure I was you know saving in the right places and so forth. So then we went through the whole credit crisis and the, the bank I was working for went under and was acquired by another one. And we were you know 500 miles from home and family and getting ready to have a baby. And I was really having one of those soul searching you know what have I done kind of 
kind of moments because I'm thinking, you know, I'm about to be out of a job and be moving home with my tail between my legs to live in my in-laws basement. Um, but we, we were really fortunate that didn't happen. And I was able to hang on to my job through being acquired and, and all of those things. And eventually, actually, we had bought our first house in March of 2009, which we know was sort of the bottom of everything. And I think everybody thought we were crazy, but um, I ended up getting it for a good price because the market was was pretty beat up by then. And I ended up staying there four more years and became something of a subject matter expert around a lot of the financial planning stuff for the branch office where I was and was moved into more of a relationship manager kind of a role and was mentoring other younger folks that came into the branch and was working with a lot of the financial advisors and their wealth management teams on more affluent client cases and things like that. So I was able to start applying a lot of the planning knowledge that I had acquired uh, kind of casually on my own time to my actual client cases which led me to then start the actual CFP program in 2012. And um, it was really around that time I started toying with the idea of a firm to work with younger clients. So I had a lot of affluent folks that were older that I was working with and would, would help their kids out with things like if they were getting out of school or if they were getting a new job, I might go through their retirement benefits or things like that with them. And would just start asking them questions about, you know, what kind of uh, fee might you be willing to pay on a monthly basis for this type of service? So really we're starting to look at the, I guess now we would recall the retainer model um, as early as like 2012 and just kind of doing some market testing with the, the kinds of clients that I could see benefiting from that. And, um, and from there kind of transitioned on into my next role, which was working for Aon Hewitt. Um, I realized in this process that I had here and there been kind of applying for some financial planner types of roles as I was going through the CFP and was getting turned down kind of routinely and was really realizing that in looking at my resume and looking at my actual work history that I had a lot of practical knowledge around financial planning and a lot of practical sort of hands-on experience, but my resume and my actual career experience didn't really reflect that. So I decided I needed to go get some experience really talking with people about advice and about planning. So the role I took at Aon was a call center role, and I had some very specific objectives in going into that, which was really just to get good and polished at having advisory types of conversations with people, figuring that it was a call center and it was going to be inbound. It was going to be very sort of high volume, short duration type conversations. And it would force me to have to get very good at having, you know, quick, articulate conversations and get really good at explaining concepts and things like that in as few words as I could because I had a, a short time frame to do it. Um, so I did that. I worked in the call center for about two years for them and took about 12,000 calls or something to that effect, somewhere around there. Um, just having conversations with people primarily about the investments in their retirement plans because Aon's a big uh, retirement plan administrator. And in that process, also started doing a lot of presentations of their educational material. So we would go out to plan sponsors and do, you know, financial education workshops on whatever topics they wanted to talk about. So it could be maybe changes within their plans, or it could be something broader than that, you know, talking about just the basics of credit and debt or how the 401k works. There were all sorts of different topics that we worked on. Uh, but I started doing a lot of traveling and started doing a lot of that education delivery in an attempt to try to improve my public speaking skills and my comfort level with, again, trying to articulate these concepts to people who weren't necessarily experienced and exposed to financial planning. 
And um, I did that again for about two years, and then our manager left the unit, and they decided to turn the uh, reins over to me to actually run the unit in 2014. And there were seven of us there at the time, um, and I really didn't have any project management experience or people management experience at all. And that was that whole role was all project management and people management. So I was sort of intimidated and reluctant to to take it on, but thought, you know, no experience is bad experience, right? So I figured it was things I hadn't been exposed to before and, and things that would probably be helpful. So I agreed to do it. And over the next two years, I actually grew the team um, to 18 advisors by 2016. And we didn't experience any turnover at all while I was in the manager role. And I also assumed management of another team that we had in Sacramento as well. So I was managing them virtually and was really focused on creating systems and processes and things to make sure that the place was running efficiently because we were growing so fast and taking on so many clients um, so that it could be repeated so that it, the business could function on its own at some point uh, without one person being the only one that knew how to do everything. So I was working on implementing the advisory services program where we did in-plan financial advice. So the same thing I had been doing on the phone um, for new plan sponsors and doing a lot of like ad hoc financial planning projects and things like that, um, which led me to where I am now. I'll, I'll pause there for a second. I know that's sort of a lot. But. Yeah, I've been taking notes here. So I have uh, a number of questions for you on this. Um, so I think it's really interesting, the idea of like, what is a financial plan? And I think, you know, you're talking about a bank and the financial advisor at the bank going down to, uh, you said, 23-year-old and trying and, and in, this, in essence, putting together a financial plan. Like, I feel like that is very counter to what we hold up this idea of what is financial planning. I agree. And she was very um, well-respected, I would say. And, and what she was not, she was a, uh, the type of advisor who in the community was somebody who worked with very high net worth people. So that made it even more counterintuitive. Um, but I think she was one of the folks who really, truly believed in the value of planning and wanted to show me even as a 23 year old that doing a couple things right early in the process um, can really lead to good positive results for somebody long term. And I credit a lot of the stuff, frankly, that I was able to sort of navigate through in 2008 because I had already been saving in my 401k, for example, for five years by then. Um, things like that where it was because of her that I was really able to get my arms around the idea that planning is something that other younger people should be doing. It's not just for people who already have money. And that's a theme that's really stuck with me throughout the entirety of my career and, and to this day. Um, there wasn't much going on in that plan, as you can imagine. It was pretty bare bones, but it, she still took the time to do it and to give me a couple takeaways of things I needed to do, like enrolling in the 401k, because I hadn't. One of the questions that I get a lot is, you know, or maybe not questions, but more statements that I hear, especially from younger advisors, is that they want to really do true financial planning at an RAA. And they're just like, should I even consider a job at a broker dealer or, I mean, even a bank? I mean, I feel like that's kind of in people's minds, that's not like true financial planning. Um, but I think your point is so spot on that there is really good financial planning going on at many of these places. Yeah, there absolutely is. That's a great point. And it's funny, I've only ever worked at broker dealers um, that they've had IRA or RAs that were part of that, you know, rather. So they had both, you know, the sort of the hybrid model. Um, but I think 
to me at least, at least in my experience, I can't really speak for others, but you know, I think a lot of it really comes down to the individuals that are doing the work. And people who buy into the notion that financial planning is a mechanism for positive change in the lives of people, you can find ways to do that really regardless of what business structure you're operating within, if that makes sense. I think a lot of that comes from the internal sort of drive and motivations of the advisor or the planner themselves. I mean, I knew some, when I was with the bank, I knew some extremely talented planners. Who they, I mean, they weren't even CFPs. A lot of them had law backgrounds and a lot of them had backgrounds in other things. And they were incredibly talented and skilled at working with people and really making a difference. And to me, at the end of the day, I mean, that should be the, the, the goal is are we positively influencing people's lives to where we're able to influence outcomes to be better than they would be without us? And I think that's really been my motivation and sort of how I've approached planning um, throughout my career, regardless of what type of, of role I was in. The other thing that I find so interesting about your story is that you went from it's like you're working your way up and then you went back to a call center. And I feel like when I hear, when I hear people say that, I feel like a lot of people would view that as like a step back, but I loved how you talked about how there were just very specific objectives that you wanted to get out of it. Yeah, everybody thought I was crazy. It really did. Even my wife, she was really kind of put off by the idea and because it was, and it was a weird situation too, for a while. I mean, I was working funny hours, you know, I had gone from working bank bankers hours, right. Being home at five o'clock or, whatever. Now suddenly I was working nights in a call center and it was, it was a, a big transition. It was kind of strange, but I just knew for some reason I had this, just this gut feeling that it was the thing I needed to be doing because I needed to get that exposure to having those types of discussions um, with people in order to hone the skills that I wanted to have that I knew I was lacking, if that makes sense. Like that was the one thing because I wasn't a lead advisor. I wasn't leading planning meetings. I was really trying to get bank clients in front of the financial advisory team. Um, but I was also the guy sometimes they would bring in to explain stuff to people who weren't really ready to commit to investing or commit to whatever the implementation solution was. So I had had some exposure to it at that point. So it was one of those things where I knew I was good at it or was getting better at it. But I actually needed to be able to demonstrate that somehow in a formal sense. And so I just saw that call center experience to where I could put on there, yeah, I've been an investment advisor for the last two years or whatever. I, the management piece was never really on my mind. That was not something I went after at all. Um, it was just an interesting sort of segue that uh, I guess I had done the, the investment advisor part of it pretty well. So looking back on that time, I mean, did you feel like you fulfilled those objectives that you started out with? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like I did. And it was it was really neat because, you know, I got to a point where in maybe a year or so ago, where in my manager role, I suddenly realized one day that I had accomplished all the stuff that they had wanted me to accomplish. So when I came into that management role, the director of client services, who was also the CEO of the RIA, um, that had brought me in and asked me to really take over that role, we had a very clear list of objectives. Again, there were things that they needed done in there. And a lot of it was operational. It was there were lacking sort of operational efficiencies that were really needed to help scale the business and help it grow and, and hire new people and bring them in and things like that. So I spent a lot of time early on developing 
like training processes and putting together materials and, and creating a training manual because there really wasn't one and building things like schedules and, you know, which isn't financial planning related really at all. It was really more of an operations um, type of a role for a, for a good while. But I, I got to a point after about two years where I suddenly realized that all the stuff that I had set out to do, I'd done. And so at that point, I started trying to identify who my successor should be and did and started moving a lot of the management of the people, uh, the day to day stuff off onto him so that eventually that role could be split in two and you'd have an operations person kind of handling the implementation project management work and somebody else actually managing the people because the team had gotten a lot bigger. You know, it's a different situation managing 18 people than managing seven. Um, so the role had just grown a lot while I was in it. But again, realized I had fulfilled what I had gone there to do and, and was really starting to wonder what was next. And um, that was around the time I had discovered what the XY Planning Network was doing and started to think about the things I had been thinking about back in 2012 again. You know, I feel like I had sort of taken a four-year tangent and, and was back to thinking about this whole notion of having my own firm to work with younger people who had less access to getting good quality financial planning. And that's kind of led me to where I am now. So at that point, you're evaluating your options. I mean, were you wanting to go out on your own and start your own practice? Or kind of what was your thought process for evaluating opportunities? Sure. So yes, I had. That was definitely something I was thinking about. So I was sort of looking at two different options. I was looking at you know, Charlotte, the financial services landscape in Charlotte is kind of unique in that, for one thing, we're the second biggest hub of financial services, I believe, on the East Coast. I'm not sure nationally, but I know on the East Coast to New York City. So the banks have just sort of a stranglehold on the financial services industry here in Charlotte. Um, so I think I saw a statistic one time that there's more Series 7 registered reps per capita in Charlotte than any other city in the U.S., and I would believe it. Um, there's a lot of other firms that are headquartered here, too. So outside the big banks, there's also like Vanguard's got a huge office here in TIA, CREF, and there's others. Um, so which, from a recruiting standpoint, when I was at Aon, made my job easy because I had a lot of talented people with the right licenses and things to come work for us. But from a competitive standpoint, when you're in the more traditional wealth management space, it's tough. So there's not a lot of independent RIAs um, that are kind of doing their own thing here because there's just so much competition in that space, unless you've got a really tight niche um, of people to work with. But that said, as I started looking at the opportunities to work with younger people, it suddenly occurred to me that this was the perfect place to do it because there's a lot of younger professionals here that are moving here like I had done and, and people now that are younger than me doing the same thing. It's one of the top three destinations, I think, in the country right now in terms of where people are going. And because the banks and the other, you know, the bigger outfits have such a presence here, it leaves a huge opening to build something to start working with the rest of everybody else that they're not working with. Um, so that was sort of my thought process, you know, the whole blue ocean strategy that, that we hear talked about where to me, that was the blue ocean opportunity that because the banks were doing everything at the high end, that left a huge opening to work with people at the bottom end and was thinking if, if I start my own firm, I mean, how many clients do I really need to have to work with? Right. You know, maybe 75 or a hundred. Surely I could convince a hundred of my peers that they needed help with financial planning on an ongoing basis. So that was sort of where I was coming at it from. And, um, 
I was working through the process of kind of putting together a business plan and kind of testing the market and, and all of that. And last summer then was actually contacted by a recruiter for a existing planning firm here in Charlotte that works very much like what I was describing. It does, you know, it does work with some younger people on accumulation planning, but their primary uh, focus is really around folks that are you know, more complex in terms of what their, their needs are and, and require more complex strategies and, and retirees really around retirement income and business succession planning and things. That's sort of their um, bread and butter. So I met with her and we had a, a lovely discussion. And this was the week actually before uh, the XYPN 16 conference back in September, where actually I met you um, while I was there. And um, you know, we, we were chatting about the fact that this firm was looking at possibly starting up a sort of separate entity to work with the types of clients that I was talking about. So I thought, well, this is interesting. So it was funny timing in that I was getting ready to go to the conference where, of course, that was the topic for the, the days we were there. So went there, learned a lot at the conference, met a lot of really neat people and uh, learned some good takeaways about starting a firm and some of some of those kinds of things. So I came back uh, to Charlotte and kept up the communications with the recruiter and ended up meeting the CEO of this firm. And just it was really interesting. I brought him back a copy of the book, uh, The Monthly Retainer Model, that was authored by Alan Moore and Michael Kitsis. And, and they really get into the details of the whole monthly retainer model and how to apply it in your firm and why it works and, and so forth. And again, this goes back to my idea from 2012 that I had sort of stumbled upon this idea too, just in, in talking with people. So I came to the meeting with the CEO for the first time with a copy of that book and, and gave it to him. And we were talking you know, sort of high level about just what our thoughts on the subject were. And I asked him if he'd read the book. And he said, sure. And thank me for bringing it to him. And we went through this process for a couple of months of interviews with other people in the firm and meetings with him and discussions sort of strategically about, you know, my thoughts and his thoughts and so forth. And eventually he came back and offered me the role of, of managing director of this new firm that they were going to be building. He wanted me to come on board and really be responsible for helping design and brand the new firm and help source and hire advisors to work there and, and do the financial education for members and things like that, as well as working with clients. So I looked at it as a really good opportunity to do a couple of things. One, you know, I have experience in managing people and hiring people and so forth. So I get to apply some of that learning I had gotten in, in my last role, um, but also getting to apply a lot of the things I had been doing on my own in terms of the content marketing and the branding and, and the building a firm to work with that particular demographic, as well as going back to actually having clients and getting to work with my peers and other young professionals that I was trying to work with, again, going all the way back to 2012. So I agreed. I, I joined officially on on February the 1st of this year. So it's been just about five weeks now. It hasn't been very long. Um, and we chose the name Blueprint. So we uh, thought that was the, uh, the best sort of metaphor for what we're doing. We mean that metaphorically. Um, but we've hired a PR firm and we, we've got a physical real estate uh, office building we're going to be moving into tentatively on June the 1st. And we're still working out a lot of the details. So we don't have a lot of the, uh, the, the really detailed parts figured out yet. But we're working on hiring advisors in this area here in Charlotte uh, to come in and, and be advisors in the firm. And I'm just really excited about it. It's just, it was 
different than what I sort of envisioned at the beginning when I started down this road, but to me, it feels like it's the right fit. It, it just makes sense that the scale at which we'll be able to do this, having a firm behind us that's been around for 36 years and has 12 offices around the Southeast and about a billion six under management, uh, will make this much more impactful than anything I could have done on my own. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this, this firm is already established. So you, were you, so they already had the vision of creating this model or this service for younger advisors, or did you bring that to them? They were to a point where they were identifying the fact that there was a huge opportunity there. So at the initial stages of things, we were sort of doing the same things in parallel without really realizing that each other were doing it, if that makes sense. We'd even used a lot of the same research. It was funny that when I got here and started looking at a lot of the research that, that they had used to reach that conclusion, a lot of it was the same research I had used. Um, so early on, I didn't really so much convince them that it was a good idea in so much as help reinforce some of what they were doing and bring some of my own perspectives to it as someone in the demographic that they're looking to both hire as advisors, but also as, as clients. Um, I think they were real interested in what my perspective was in given my sort of eclectic background. You know, I, I came in here as somebody who's mid thirties, but has, you know, management experience and has a series 24 and has a CFP. And, you know, it, I'm sort of a, unusual in that regard. Um, or atypical, I guess you could say. So I think that was intriguing to them that I've got sort of the different layers of experience, um, but also, you know, really fit the demographic they were trying to work with. So I think they were well down the road to answer your question, but I think, you know, we're really interested in my opinions and feedback based on my experience in terms of how to do it. One of the things I always say is what makes you different really makes you valuable. And, <laughs> and your background made you so, I mean, I, it just makes so much sense how you'd be such a great fit for a position like that. Yeah, it just made, I feel like it makes sense to me too. And I'm still sort of trying to find my way in, you know, the, the leadership team here um, is made up of two outside folks. So myself and then our recruiter um, came from outside firms and then two of the other folks that are on the leadership team, or I guess three of them. Um, are internal that we're working in other capacities for the existing firm. So I think that's good in the sense that you get some of the uh, exposure to kind of how the firm works now and then having some outside opinions and, and views on some things has, I think, influenced some thoughts around, you know, what may be different than was originally thought based on somebody else's perspective. And that was really important, I think, to the group as a whole to have a, a good diversity of opinion, um, both from an experience level standpoint, um, as well as you know, from a, a gender standpoint, two of our leaders are female or three of our leaders, I guess, are female, um, which is great. So we've got it's 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 really intended to be sort of the firm of the future, you know, not without, without sounding cliche, but that's sort of the point is it's we're really trying to reinvent and reimagine the whole delivery mechanism for planning for younger people. So let's talk about that for a minute. So how do you envision that that model of serving younger people being different than what I guess you would say the traditional model is? Sure. So one of the things I think that's going to be the key, and there's really three things I think that make us specifically different um, that we've identified. One is that we're using what we're referring to or describing as a membership model. Um, so using the retainer idea 
um, but sort of expanding on that to a membership model where you know our clients you know we're, we're calling them members but it's really more than just semantics it's there we're actually wanting them to join blueprint like we want them to be members of blueprint and in paying that sort of ongoing planning fee for one thing you know the research has shown that that does help keep clients engaged in the process and less focused on the here and now but also we're going to be doing a lot of other things for that fee on an ongoing basis as well so the space that we're going to be moving into is very big and open and has space in it that we can actually use to hold client events and so we envision doing a lot of like workshops and seminars and you know a lot of that stuff on site um, for members as well as having like other experts and other people come in and do presentations and things um, doing a lot of like pop-up types of events having food trucks and things like that there um, and have like you know client networking events and, and things of that nature uh, we've even talked about like I think one of our uh, folks on our leadership team is has a client or a friend that's a yoga instructor so having maybe like a members only yoga class like once a month trying to make it much more of a sort of a lifestyle kind of feel where they're joining you know this thing for which yeah there's financial planning that goes on but there's also the ability to interact with their other the other members and really be a part of something here in the community um, we really want to try to focus on doing a lot of community outreach too so doing a lot of charitable work in the community and being tied in with nonprofits and things like that to have a presence visually in the community of, of really working to make a difference in helping, you know, empowering people economically beyond just financial planning, but even as something as basic as, you know, people needing jobs <laughs> and helping, you know, the sort of underprivileged folks with you know, job programs and things like that. It, I think it all goes together, right? It, it's, it's hard to have a financial plan if you don't have a job or an income. Right, it's that more holistic approach. That's that's so interesting. So that's kind of our vision. That's that's what we'd like to be working on over the next couple of months is putting all that together. And the PR firm we've hired is really helping with that um, in terms of like the event planning and some of that stuff. We we want to have a big sort of grand opening celebration once we get moved into our space this summer and, um, and sort of try that idea out of having you know, the big events on on site. But I can see that being, I think, a, a big attraction. You know, we're right downtown. We're right in a a really sort of populous area right next to the uh, Carolina Panthers Stadium. So it's a very young area. There's a lot of professionals. You know, when you be down there during the day and you see a lot of young people around. So I think it's going to be um, pretty attractive to people to come in and, and see what we're doing. I know in Dallas, um, there's several models where it's almost like entrepreneur groups where mm -hmm. you can do like co-working spaces, but there's additional services beyond that that people are willing to pay a subscription for. So it's a very similar idea. It's funny you say that, that our PR firm actually is in a co-working space that's right across the street from where our office is going to be. And that's that's how that is. It's very similar to that. Um, so I think there's some, you know, that, and that makes, I mean, how many financial planning firms do you know of that are doing that, right? That uh, to me, that's a very different feel. Um, that, and, it, and I don't want this to be, you know, the planning to be watered down or anything by that. It's, I think there's, we've had, you know, that criticism come up of, you know, trying to somehow dilute the quality of the planning. And that's not it at all. It's really just to make it more approachable and more accessible to people. You know, it, a lot of times people don't even know what financial planning is until you show it to them, right? They just have this idea that they've got a lot of stuff kind of going on and it's confusing to them and, you know, it's intimidating and coming into a real traditional you know, brick and mortar type of office with, you know, people in suits and, fancy furniture. And I think that's really off-putting to a lot of people. It just makes them uncomfortable. 
And uh, we want to try to be the opposite of that. You know, we want to try this open doors approach to having as many people in to see the space and to see us and, you know, get some education and, and learn a little bit about what we're doing to try to make this as, as accessible and as uh, least threatening as possible to people so that they will you know, partake of it and be better for it. So you said that there were three things that really differentiated you guys, that membership model and then just the other two, just to make sure I don't miss them. Sure. So um, the other two being... I guess we will call two and a half because two of them kind of go together. So the process that we're going to follow is going to be very uh, strict in terms of how we do the planning. So the plan obviously is going to be very unique to the to the member, right? That they're it's going to be based on their of course their goals and and their specific situation. But the approach that we take in arriving at that plan is going to be consistent across everybody. Sort of using the Starbucks model, right? You know, when you go to Starbucks, if you go to one in Thailand, I guess if they have them in Thailand, you know, if you order a drink in Thailand, it's going to be exactly the same as it is if you order it in Manhattan, right? Or here in Charlotte or Dallas or whatever. So it's important to us that that process be put in place early on. And we're borrowing heavily from our um, parent firm to do this, that they've been doing this for 36 years. And so they've had a long time to try things out and see what works. And so taking that existing process to get a, a member involved in the plan development, um, but then also um, using, we have a proprietary uh, software solution that's theirs that we're using to, to really put this together for them and give them access to be able to see it all. Um, it's sort of built on top of eMoney, um, but it's gonna give them a place where they can go online and they can actually see everything in one place and see it organized in a way uh, where it makes sense to them and we'll kind of work from that. So it being very interactive in terms of using that to support our meetings with them in terms of using that as the basis for comparison in terms of measuring progress and so forth. The other big thing is the fact that we have a, a back office team that's basically doing all of our plan generation and case design. So we really want our advisors to be focused on doing what they do best, which is you know, finding good clients to work with and knowing their clients and being you know, the, really the face of their practice to their clients and the communication and holding the meetings and all of that, but not necessarily having to be experts in every single domain and discipline of the planning process because there's just there's so much to know. And it's, it's a very different skill set a lot of times. People who are good at being client-facing aren't necessarily the best ones at plan generation, right? They don't necessarily want to have to be doing all of the recommendations and putting all the pieces together. Um, so... To solve for that, we're, we have a team of people who are experts in that and just that. They never see a client who advisors can submit all of their client cases to and have them put together sort of on the back end. And, and they lead the, uh, the process. They take the advisor through that process and help them put their meeting notes together and put together their recommendations and coach them on how to communicate that to their clients and things like that in an effort to really sort of groom the advisor to be doing more of that stuff themselves. But it gives us the ability to then bring in younger, less experienced advisors to work with their peers, which is really who our target audience is, without having to be overly concerned about whether they're, you know, hyper experienced in every domain. And I think the majority of our, our people that we work with, I mean, they're going to have relatively simple situations comparatively. I don't think we'll be doing a lot of like really advanced tax planning and a lot of really advanced estate planning. Um, so we, the streamlining of that process should be helpful in helping the advisor be able to just frankly work with more clients because they're not having to spend a lot of the time 
on all of the paperwork and all the stuff that just goes along with onboarding somebody new, that we've got a whole team behind them that can do that for them. In order to have a really successful business, I mean, there's so much business management that goes into it. And I'm what I'm hearing a lot of what you're saying is you're really building that structure to have a really sustainable business that can scale and expand. That's it. And our plan long-term is to be able to do this in other cities. So assuming this is successful here in Charlotte and we can make it work, because we focus on the process and focused on building it such that it, it does scale, we could be opening other offices so have other blueprints in other areas. So maybe we go to Charleston and have blueprint Charleston or go to Atlanta and have blueprint Atlanta. Or I don't know, you know, wh wherever we end up. Um, but it would be pretty simple and turnkey at that point to open other offices anywhere we feel like we can hire advisors to work with clients and anywhere where we feel like we have the types of clients who would want to work with us. Um, because we're not trying to reinvent the wheel every time we do it. Uh, we find, you know, find what works here and, and build it here sort of as the hub, but then we can have natural extensions, I think, pretty easily. And we're able to reach a whole lot more people. I mean, that was the main sort of thing that, that landed me here was that, you know, again, I could only work with maybe 75 or 100 people on my own without having to start growing a business. And then you become a business owner, you know, and you're operating your business. You're not necessarily doing what you do best or what you want to be doing. Um, to where this way, you know, we're able to just let the advisors be advisors, let them work with clients. You know, the back office team is great. They can do the back office work, the case design, and everybody's, you know, being used to their highest and best use um, in a way that's going to allow us to help a whole lot more people. So some of the logistics of this, are you guys going to be managing assets? Uh, we will. Now, the majority of the way it will be done is through, we'll be using TAMPS to do it. So we won't be doing it in-house. We're not going to do any kind of like proprietary investment management or anything like that. Um, we want to try to keep the options pretty limited in terms of um, finding things that work, that we're comfortable with, and then just using those. So we're not, you know, using the entire universe of, of available investments. We've, we've vetted and chosen, I think, three platforms is where we've landed. Um, one's a DFA platform, uh, one's a uh, ETF platform, and then there's a third. Um, we would use in sort of limited limited cases. But again, we want to try to make this simple for people that we don't want to have a whole lot of moving parts because our average members' cases are not going to be terribly complex. These are going to be people that are really kind of just starting out. They might have, you know, some old retirement accounts or something that we need to help manage. But I don't foresee us, at least in the early stages, having a lot of assets um, to manage. But it's something we absolutely have the capacity to do and can certainly do so. Will you guys be like writing insurance policies like life insurance or disability or anything like that? Well, absolutely. So again, that's something I think that's a little bit different and something that, you know, may catch some eyebrows from <laughs> some of our peers. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are that we absolutely are going to be doing that that type of work. And, you know, again, that that back office team is in place to help make sure that that is being done to its its best ability. So that we don't have the advisors trying to sift through the entire universe of what's available from an insurance standpoint. Um, we'll have, you know, several uh, different types of, of policies that have already been vetted in certain carriers that we use um, for both life and disability. And I, I'm envisioning the majority of the insurance that we do is going to be term um, and DI probably, you know, if we're working with young professionals, I would imagine those will be the two um, things that we use most frequently. And frankly, and you know, you know this too from experience probably in talking with folks, that those tend to be the two things that most younger people need and don't have. Um, but that's not generally a terribly difficult discussion. Uh, the only obstacle there tends to be cost. And we'll be having the 
cash flow discussions very early in the process too, that we won't, we'll never recommend a solution to somebody that they can't afford. Uh, our job as advisors and planners is to help them find the money to, to implement their plan to make sure that they're able to afford the things we're telling them to do. It's not terribly useful if we're telling them to buy a bunch of stuff or they need a bunch of stuff that they can't afford. So um, that's a, it's all part of the process. Are you guys going to be doing heavy cash flow management? I mean, I, I know I think all financial, well, many financial planners do it at the upfront, but I mean, I know I don't really maintain that throughout the relationship. Are you guys wanting to maintain that cash flow piece on like a month to month basis? I think the cash flow piece is going to be key, at least early on with people in terms of just getting them A, aware of their cash flow, right? That's sort of where it starts. Um, but then B, able to stick to a plan. And we're very much of the philosophy that if they're doing the stuff that they need to be doing, so if they're saving you know, 15 to 20% of their income, say, and if they have the right protection pieces in place, be that insurance or whether that's their estate plan or you know whatever different things we could look at there, if they're a business owner, they've got the right business owner protections, the right legal structures, all that stuff. They've got that stuff in place if they're saving enough and you know, their taxes and things like that are, are, are optimized as best as they can be, then the rest of it really doesn't matter all that much. You know, I think we spend a lot of time sometimes really diving into the minutiae of cash flow management, where in a lot of cases, if you just kind of get the big stuff right, so if they're in the right mortgage, if they're not buying too much car, if they're, you know, we can keep sort of them in the guardrails of making good educated spending decisions and have them doing all of the other things they need to be doing, then the rest of it really doesn't matter. I've sort of heard that referred to as the anti-budget. Um, so I think that's kind of where we'll, we'll be, where it's sort of a healthy awareness and a sort of a monitoring of it, but I don't really see us necessarily being the, the budget police either. Um, you know, we're not going to be shaming people for spending too much money at Starbucks. Like, I don't, I don't think that necessarily is helpful. Um, I think it's really more about making a case for, you know, the fact that, all of the money that they're going to earn over their entire lifetime um, you know, has the potential to stay on their balance sheet, right? That if you add up every dollar you ever make, you know, and then you have to start backing expenses out of it, our job as advisors above everything else is to help them keep as much of that on their balance sheet as we can. And so I think if we come at it from that approach and that angle, then a lot of that minutia of the budgeting process that people hate kind of goes away. It's just a matter of helping them understand the habits that they need to create and, and being sort of an accountability partner and a coach there to make sure that part's happening. But beyond that, I don't, I don't know how much we would necessarily really need to do. Right. I tend to very much agree with that uh, budgeting approach. Getting into the details is just, doesn't ever seem to go well. well I've seen people kind of go crazy with it too at times where, you know, They'll have the budget so subdivided that they'll have money in one bucket, but they're out of money in another bucket. And they'll, you know, they won't do something because the money's not in the one bucket where it needs to be, even though they've got an excess in another bucket and they refuse to move it over <laughs> mentally. You know, that mental accounting sort of hurdle they, they can't get over. And, and that's not productive either. And it just sort of becomes a you know, sort of a control thing. And it's really, I don't know how productive and helpful that really is to advancing somebody's plan forward and, and really helping them improve their balance sheet, which again, at the end of the day, that's that's sort of the objective, I would I would imagine for most of us. Mm -hmm. So with this service, and what, what would a client or a member pay for a service like this? 
That's a great question. We haven't really 100% settled on the specifics yet, but it's not going to be a lot. We're going to be looking probably, I hate to put a specific dollar amount to it, but I'm going to say something probably less than $100 a month. Um, it's not going to be a lot. And the reason for that is we want it to be enough where the, the person's engaged enough that they feel like they're getting value out of their dollars. Um, but we want, don't want it to be so high that it's an obstacle to having somebody join, right? That we don't want to turn them off at the early stage because we're asking them to, to pay too much to be a member. So we're, we're still working through that in terms of sort of finding that right price point. But that's frankly one of the advantages of the model being what it is, is that by having those other sources of revenue to the firm, it helps to kind of stabilize the cash flow a little bit. And it makes the projections around growth more predictable. Because if we know, you know, av on average, what the average case size from an insurance standpoint might look like, or if we know, you know, what the average AUM may look like and what the roughly what the planning fees might look like, it gives us the ability to kind of forecast what the firm growth will look like um, in a more predictable sense than if we're trying to do, you know, all fee and try to figure out how many clients we can bring in at that price point. It's, it's a little bit of a different way to look at it, I know, but it's... Um, we want it to just sort of be right in that sweet spot. And I don't know that we've 100% landed on exactly what that dollar amount will be. So for each advisor, how many clients would one advisor have? Good question, too. It's one of these things I think we're going to have to kind of feel it out as we go. I would say safely, probably, just, this is purely guessing, maybe 120 or so, maybe more. And if we find that, you know, if, if we're having the problem of, demand exceeding our capacity and we can always hire more people. So whether that means hiring more advisors and forming teams, whether that means hiring, you know, juniors to help the people who have been around longer from a client service standpoint, I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but um, I think that's one thing we can always do is, is bring in more people if we need them. That, that'd be a great problem to have, frankly. I, I hope that's the problem we have is that people are so excited about what we're doing that we can't keep up with the demand for our services. <laughs> that's what we all want, right? <laughs> It's a good problem to have. Those are the, those Absolutely. are the desirable. That's a problem I will adapt and, and adapt to and address when it happens. So for a firm starting, for a firm who's looking at this and saying, you know, this is really interesting. I know that a lot of these bigger RAs are recognizing the opportunity that's in this space. What would be your advice to them um, as they just kind of look at this and, and try to figure out what to do next? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think the key is understanding what your actual target client is looking for um, and, and understanding what services that they actually need, not necessarily what you think they need. Because sometimes that's different. I mean, I did a lot of market surveys in terms of asking people who were friends and colleagues and things who sort of fit what I saw my ideal client profile or avatar or you know, whatever we want to call them, kind of what that looked like. And just would ask them point blank or they'd be telling me things about stuff they had going on in their life. And I would sort of make a mental note of that and think, oh, that'd be an interesting thing to, you know, be able to kind of talk around or be an interesting thing to be able to plan around. You know, things like stuff we don't always think of necessarily traditionally in financial planning, but, you know, something like helping somebody negotiate a raise or a job or evaluate a job offer or things like that, especially for younger people. Um, you know, the impact that a, a raise early in your career can have over the, your lifetime earnings is pretty significant, um, especially if you're taking it and saving it or doing something else with it. Um, you know, it can be huge in terms of impact. You could theoretically add, I don't know, probably a million dollars or so to somebody's balance sheet 
by helping them negotiate a raise really early in the process, just by virtue of that compounding over time. Um, so I think to get back to answer your question, I think it's for firms to kind of be able to think outside the box a little bit and get away from just the managing assets as their core business offering and getting out of that mindset and focusing on how do we address the things that people actually need help with and how do we get them to pay us to help them with that <laughs> and, and then kind of go from there. It sounds almost painfully obvious, but it's it, it's missed because I think they get so stuck in sort of what the traditional wealth management model has looked like that it's very difficult to be creative when you're sort of stuck in that box. So beyond just the f- Maybe it's within your firm too, but even just in a broader perspective, like what do you view as the future of financial planning? It's a great question too. And just completely opining for a second, I think it's a largely going to be more lifestyle oriented. And I think we're starting to see that. I mean, you know, bringing life planning into it, you know, all the work that George Kinder's done and, you know, others as well in the field and starting to marry that idea of life planning with financial planning. I think that's sort of the beginning of a, of a snowball rolling down a hill. And, you know, we see a lot of the tie-ins with behavioral finance and we see the tie-ins from uh, folks like Rick Kaler and financial therapy. I think that's going to be a big part of it. Um, And I think the other piece of it then is really the collaborative nature of it. So it's really getting technology in the hands of the client and letting them manipulate their own plan, you know, in one way or another. Um, And I don't necessarily mean that in like the robo-advisor sense where you're just, you know, putting them in front of technology and turning them loose. But really a matter of having a way to help the client envision different versions of their future selves um, under different sets of circumstances by having them actually manipulating the planning software or manipulating, you know, whatever the sort of deliverable is that we're showing them to really help connect them with that future self. You know, we've seen a lot of research about how people are incapable, it seems, to identify with their, their future self. And I think there's a lot of work we can do there to help people get a better grip on what their future may actually look like and how the things they're doing today will translate to supporting those things they say they want in the future. So I think that life planning piece will be key with that. And I think also just the collaborative nature of the relationship with a planner um, being sitting on the same side of the of the table together kind of almost as a guide through that process, I think is really where, at least personally, I see I see the, the opportunity being. I think that's what people are really asking for. They want that sort of hand-holding and accountability um, with a layer of you know, financial acumen or know-how or whatever on top of that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, there's so much, you can Google so much. I mean, there's very little new, inform- new information that you couldn't find online. Agreed. And the part of the, the trick, I think, for us as planners will be how do we synthesize that in a way that is both palatable to a client, so a place where they can actually accept it and use it, um, but it, but it's also motivational in the sense it's, it spurs action in some sense. And I think you know there, there's room for improvement in those places that it's got to go further than just us proclaiming they need to do X and if they want to support their goals. Um, and showing them charts and graphs and statistics and so forth to, to do that. It's, there's got to be more of a emotional tie-in. And I think there's a lot of work, frankly, going on by leaders in our in our field that are doing this. I mean, the stuff that Carl Richards does is, is great at that and, and others. You know, th- there's a lot of good stuff out there. I just think that if advisors start to, you know, 
read more of that and apply more of that to their own practices, the field itself will evolve as a result. For the planner who's in the first five years of their career and just looking at the future and looking at your just your own story, what advice would you give to them? Start as soon as you can. So learn as much as you can as soon as you can. Um, I started kicking the idea around of, of doing the CFP in 2009 and really didn't start on it until 2012. And if I had to, to go back and do over again, I would have done it sooner. Um, it's just it's important for a couple reasons. One being that it just it really does give you good foundational knowledge um, that you just you don't really get necessarily other ways. I mean, you can certainly get there. Like I said earlier, I've worked with a lot of really capable and qualified planners who weren't CFPs, but they were other things. They still had other life experience and other designations and things. Um, but for folks today, it really has become sort of the gold standard and the, the ticket to entry into the field that I think you garner more professional respect amongst your peers uh, once you have the CFP. And I think the public is starting to catch on to, I think a lot of the awareness campaigns that the CFP board have, has been doing over the last few years have been effective. Um, I think, you know, we gotten you know questions in, in roles I've been in about you know people only wanting to talk to a CFP or things like that so I think that the public is starting to catch on so I, that would be my piece of advice is really start with that uh, whether even it's you know at the undergrad level you know I don't know how many folks that are going into college maybe have any idea they want to be a financial planner but um, if not then then as soon as humanly possible once you make the commitment to doing this for your career, um, getting that education as early in the process as possible can only help because everything else you learn on top of that later is just additive. It's just like the compounding interest of if you start investing in a Roth IRA when you're 18. That's a great way to look at it. That sort of compounding knowledge. I've never really thought about it that way, but I think it's true that if you start the snowball down the hill early from a knowledge standpoint too, you're able to accumulate a whole lot of it by the time you get mid-career. You know a lot about a lot of stuff. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. I know I already said this, but I'm really excited about what James and Blueprint are doing and where our profession is headed. Speaking of the future of the profession, I know quite a few of you are studying for the CFP exam and will be taking it next week. Good luck as you wrap up studying and know that there are many, many people who are cheering you on. We'll talk next week.